for me, two general rules that we kind of adopt. Number one, combat sports are largely driven by um, repeatability. All right. So your best athletes are going to be the ones that can do things repeatedly for capacity. Now, whether that is high intensity, discrete efforts, you repeat those over time, or whether that is endurance efforts that repeat over time. Combat sports are about the ability to go again and again and again and execute. And the best athletes do that. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is all about strength and conditioning for combat athletes. So we're joined by Duncan French, UFC Performance Institute, Danny Wilson from Boxing Science, and Reese Ingram, who at the time was with GB Taekwondo, but is now currently with British Cycling. And we dive into conditioning with fighters in different sports, profiling of fighters, challenges when working with combat athletes, a lot around tradition in that section, and then building strength and power in fighters of different weight classes. So if you're working with athletes in any combat sport, We've got lots of information in this episode the next hour with these three experts in the field. So it'll be an episode, if you're in this area, which I'm sure you'll really enjoy. This episode of the Pace of Performance podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientists to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. Also sponsoring this episode is Play. Play is the leader in high-performance athletic flooring and strength equipment globally. So with offices in the US, Australia and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end experience by collaborating with organisations through their own proprietary formula to create world-class environments for coaches and athletes. Plays Achieve 18mm Rubber and Attack Turf have been at the cornerstone of elite training facilities for now over a decade with the addition of the new Icon X rack range. Play are once again set to elevate the industry. On the 23rd of April 2022, Play will be hosting their first UK lab of the year in collaboration with Loughborough University. Play will be joined by some exceptional speakers from elite sport, industry and academia with a huge breadth of knowledge and experience. Listeners and supporters of Pace Performance Podcast are able to obtain an exclusive 20% discount using the code SPORTSMITH20 when registering at playacademy.com forward slash play hyphen labs hyphen Loughborough. So without further ado, over to the episode with Duncan, Danny and Reese. Right, let's crack on. Dunk, coming to you first. We're not doing any introductions. People know who these guys are. So, uh, conditioned fighters, where are we? Where do we start? I know you've done a lot of work putting out the publications that you've done through the UFC, but where the people that are working with combat athletes, where do they start to understand what the athlete needs? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, Rob. Um, and, I'm, you know, I'm sure Danny and Reed still have their own kind of interpretation to this. But for me, it's, um, you know, it's pretty complex. And, and like everything, there's, there's no right or wrong answer. Um, for, for me, I think a good place to start is always understanding um, the, the balance between sport-specific conditioning and general adaptation conditioning. And I think when you get into combat sports which are not necessarily locomotive in nature and lend themselves always to what is what I would call kind of traditional conditioning um, sometimes we get caught or hung up in the um, the need for things to look super specific it's got to look like the sport so it's got to be you know taekwondo kicks or it's got to be grappling exercises in jiu-jitsu or it's got to be you know striking efforts and I think you know that we've got to be really careful with that and I think if you start to 
you know, really build out your, your programming and your planning strategy, you can then understand the, the right time and place to put those types of things in there. Um, I am a advocate of not everything looking like the sport. And I think, you know, 90% of the coaches that I've worked with in combat sports actually have a preference to do true conditioning, fight specific conditioning in combat and in, in sparring, right? Um, so we've got to understand our role in the process here as, as strength and conditioning or physical preparation coaches and understand how we get the adaptations to support the technical tactical work. So I think that's where I always start is what's the balance there. Um, we can then get into kind of the characteristics of different combat sports, obviously. Um, and that starts with, you know, competition characteristics, you know, how many rounds, how long are the rounds, how long are the intervals of rest, you know, preparing a judo fighter for five minutes, continuous work versus a boxer, which is, you know, three minute efforts times 12 across 36 minutes like that. That's just a completely different narrative. OK, um, so, you know, that, that, that's a simple place to grab onto as well. And then you get into kind of postures and positions and force vectors that I've talked about. You know, do you train a jiu-jitsu player the way you would train a stand-up kickboxer or a boxer like Danny does? Um, you know, you can create an argument for yes or no. And that then comes back to the conversation around the need for sports specificity or the actual just desire to create and a you know, physiological adaptation of the, the cardiovascular system or whatever it may be. So, you know, th those are certainly kind of places to begin the conversation and um, before you even get into whether it's hip training whether it's endurance training whether it's cardiac overload whatever it may be like you just got to start to understand the characteristics of a sport and the demands of a sport and when to try and chase sport specificity and when not to chase sport specificity because you just try to create a, a desired adaptation on a, on a general a general holistic biological level I mean, you know, we, we can then get into kind of training phases, whether it's in camp or off camp um, or whether someone is ahead of a weight descent or is struggling with their weight making exercises and activities. You know, all these types of things come into the conversation. So to kind of wrap it up before I throw it to the other guys. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, there's there's lots of things to consider when it comes to conversations around bioenergetics training or conditioning, as we would call it. Um, and how you do that effectively for different combat sports, because they all come with very different needs and requirements. Cool. Thanks, mate. Set us off nicely. Reese, you unmuted first, I believe. So I'll come to you, then I'll then Danny, feel free to jump in. I'll take it. Um, yeah, no, I completely agree with Dunk. Everything Dunk said there is bang on. Um, I think like this is a really exciting uh like space within SNC and combat sports right now. I think you know, we always used to talk about big S little C. And I feel like now, you know, Joel Jameson started it off perhaps with his his book and some of the work he put out. And then you look at some of the work that's getting done by Martin Bashai, Mladen, you know, even Gareth Sanford lately with, uh, you know, and its anaerobic speed reserve. There's loads of really positive work coming in this sort of energy systems development space. Um, and it provides a lot, of, a lot of opportunities for strength conditioning coaches to get in there and work with their sports coaches to try and challenge the athletes in a way that I think... You know, previously it used to be, oh, we're just going to hit them with circuits and, you know, make people tired and, and it looks really good on, on a video, but maybe it's not, not creating a, a change that we can really pinpoint at the end and say we affected this. Um, you know, I'd like to see a little bit more research going towards this space in that, like, there's a, lo there's a lot out there on, like, locomotive sports, you know, running-based interval work. And, you know, I think digging into some of the energy, how the energy systems can be challenged within sports that don't fit that profile would be, would be awesome to see. Um, but in the meantime, like I think we're certainly starting to play with stuff. I know I spoke to Dunk previously on this as well, starting to play with different ideas on how we can challenge our athletes, um, you know, and how we can profile them off the back of that to know how to, how to challenge their energy systems appropriately. Um, I think the other interesting thing with our guys, um, you know, and I imagine it'd be the same in other fight sports as well, is that that difference between like what the upper body is doing during a fight and what the lower body is doing during a fight and the way in which you can think about those two things differently to challenge the athletes. We tend to see the upper, like in our sport, is a lot of clinch work, a lot of like hands-on pushing. So we see a lot of uh, sort of high acidic environments in the muscle muscles in the upper body. Um, and then the lower body having to, to work a bit more with use their movement, um, perhaps helping clear some of that, uh, 
some of that lactate, some of those hydrogen ions from the upper body. So I think the way in which you can approach some of these things, there's a lot of options out there and it's quite exciting. Um, you know, you have to play with some of this stuff. But uh, yeah, I think I think like within fight sports, I see a lot of opportunities to start looking at some of those options of how you can how you can really push your fighters and and understand what they're what they're going through in the sport and then challenge those energy systems appropriately. Cheers, mate. I'll come to you. There's a couple of questions off Duncan and Reese, but over to you, Danny. Yeah, well, when it comes to conditioning, I've got a secret weapon that's called uh, Dr. Alan Ruddock. Um, <laughs> it was it was. Uh, built this conditioning program that I'm lucky to, to learn from and to apply to, to the boxers here. And it's lucky for me because I don't get blamed from the boxers when they're feeling tired and feeling fatigued from the absolutely horrible sessions that Alan sets are just saying is that's Alan. So, yeah. So with boxing, it's, it's a sport of repeated high intensities. And I've heard Duncan say it before about, uh, about mixed martial arts when it's, there's a bout of five seconds, seven seconds or 10 seconds when they're going for the finish, but we don't know whether that's going to be in the first minute of a bout or the, the last minute of the bout or in the middle. Um, don't know whether they're going to finish their opponent or they have, or they, uh, if they don't get that TKO, they're going to high spike where they've got high muscular acidosis. And then it's about whether they can recognize that and whether they can recover it from it. So with us at Boxing Science, we, um, we, we say to the boxers that we want to improve their ability to produce high intensity performance and then have the ability to repeat and endure that. And we do that in various ways, but one, one way that I will mention is because what Duncan said about, uh, going from very specific to looking at general adaptations, boxing is three minutes on one minute off. And our key session that we use is 30 seconds on and three minutes off and only doing four repetitions. So Again, a boxer bought into that straight away um, can be difficult sometimes. Uh, they sometimes scratch their heads and think, what the hell am I doing this for? This isn't. This looks nothing like the sport. But then we've got to explain to them the, the reason why we're doing this is for you to produce the highest amount of intensity that you can produce and then have the ability to repeat that and draw that in about. And then basically you're ready for anything when you're going into boxing. From someone on the outside, it would look to me like you guys are challenged by the kind of long slow steady state running tradition but from what dunk said right at the start that in terms of coaches when you're dealing with coaches is that quite the opposite dunk where they want it to be super specific like you say versus what i would think that you guys are challenged with the tradition side um, it's a great question. I see Andy's obviously thrown that up on, on the chat there, um, which, which is good. I mean, I'm going to answer it in two ways. I think um, in all the different combat sports that I've worked with, there is a dogma of um, high intensity, high um, acidosis type conditioning strategies. And it comes down to, you know, the fighter will and, and the desire to, you know, run through a brick wall. And what coaches tend to do is obviously jump on top of that and push fighters and, and, and drive, you know, going into the deep water when we, we call it going into the deep water, right? I mean, ultimately taking your fighter to somewhere where they're going to be in a fight and then understand how are they going to, you know, meet and, 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 you know, obviously get through that, that demand, which usually is on a, high intensity and a high capacity characteristic, right? But absolutely, there's a, I'm going to take out kind of running, steady state running. I'm just going to say steady state exercise because, you know, certainly for our fighters, we don't necessarily do a lot of running, all right, because they're not locomotive animals and we don't want to get into kind of some issues around, you know, joint pain or body postures and things. It's just not locomotive in nature. But we do a lot of steady state cardiovascular or cardiac output strategy and again Reese touched on Joel's work historically and he was probably the first one that really got into you know the the need for cardiac output um training in you know heavy you know heavy efforts for prolonged um, periods of time and the benefits that they can have on stroke volume and heart rate and all the factors that go into cardiac output so yeah we got to remember that you know 
aerobic and cardiac endurance is the foundation of repeat sprintability from the clearance and the resynthesis of energy perspective, right? So um, there's absolutely a place for it. But I think what I would say is you've got to strategically understand the fight cycle of, of a combat athlete. And where do you start to put that type of application of training into it? And that that's where the secret sauce gets added into people's programming. Um, because, yeah, I'm not doing long, steady state training throughout a whole off-camp, fight-camp cycle for an athlete, but I'm certainly pushing it into particular places where I'm using that modality for a very specific adaptation that I'm trying to change, which is physiologically based. It's not a sport-specific adaptation. I'm driving cardiac development for benefit later down the road when we get into sport-specific training. So, yes, there's a place for both. What I've seen historically is this kind of dogma of, you know, everyone's going to go into the meat grinder and try and deal with it. Um, that's not the most intelligent intellectual way to, to, to train combat fighters. But at the same time, right at the right time in the right place in the conditioning strategy, absolutely, we've got to go there. All right, we've got to touch those competition levels of, uh, of conditioning. So, again, it's, it's the puzzle of periodization and programming. So never say never to, you know, long, slow, steady state training, um, but, but time and place. Reese, anything to add? Yeah, just like echoing a lot of those thoughts, like um, I say, you know, understanding what the why of why you put that in is, is key. Like if you need improved cardiac output, um, you know, it, great. Like if, you, if you're putting it in as like an active recovery modality, like that also makes a lot of sense to me. Um, so, you know, what, the intensity at which that's done is really, really important. Like Dunk said, for our guys, they spend a lot of time, like their whole time on their feet. You know, maybe they're training four or five hours a day some days on their feet. Often what they don't need is more time on feet, but we definitely, you know, we get the bikes out and we, we will put them on there for some of their active recovery work. So we're definitely utilizing slow, steady state stuff within that context. Um, and then, yeah, you know, our, our guys are fighting sometimes every two weeks and we need to, need to be smart about the inputs we're putting in around around those competitions and and you know low intensity work has a big place to, in that sort of puzzle when you're trying to keep athletes ticking over but not not burn too many matches that you know ultimately they're going to need on fight day um we certainly th we look at our guys from the perspective of them being sort of middle distance runner type athletes and you know i think again there's, there's value there for them but it's, it's, you've really got to know why you're putting that work into those guys and like you know target in the right area for them put the modality that's appropriate to them and and you know do enough but not we're not talking 90 minutes two hours like you might see some some guys that are proper aerobic sort of athlete you know backgrounds would there be any time reese that it would go in a program consistently no matter who they are at certain times of the year or not very individual. Yeah. It's super individual. Like we, we've got a few guys who, you know, they're, they're, they're super aerobic animals. Like they, you know, they're type one, you know, through and through. And, and to me, it makes sense for them. Like they, they, they lap up volume and that makes sense for them to, to keep, to maintain it longer during a season. Um, there's always that weight making issue that I know we'll probably touch on later where, you know, it can help from a calorie burn perspective if that's really needed as we get in towards fight day, you know, we try and educate the guys and them understand that the calorie burn we're talking about from 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour's worth of steady state cardio is relatively low. And that work needs to be taken care of in the, you know, in the kitchen, if they're going to be needing to make weight, but yeah, if we can help an athlete, you know, increase their calorie burn, and maybe that means they get to have an extra little bit of rice on their plate at the end of the day and go to bed, feeling that little bit more full, like, that that is where to me you start seeing some of these guys keep it in year round. Dunk, did you keep raising your hand there? I did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Figuring out technology. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I like just to to echo what Reese is saying. For me, um, two general rules that we kind of adopt. Um, number one. Combat sports are largely driven by um, repeatability, all right? So your best athletes are going to be the ones that can do things repeatedly for capacity. Um, now, whether that is 
high intensity, discrete efforts, you repeat those over time, or whether that is endurance efforts that repeat over time. Combat sports are about the ability to go again and again and again and execute. Um, and the best athletes do that. So when you get into kind of conversations around bioenergetics, I would always go to as a, as a cornerstone of programming for combat athletes is making sure that they have repeatability in their conditioning skills. Recent touches on something which is really important, which is not a narrative for many other sports, which is we, we work in weight classification sports, right? So the, if you think about the need to make weight, if someone, if one of the athletes or one of the fighters is challenged by weight making capabilities, that totally changes your conditioning paradigm. All right. So you say, all right, how do you how do you burn calories? Well, that's usually long, slow, prolonged, low impact cardio. All right. Well, okay, that's the antithesis of what performance training is, because performance training is high intensity, intermittent, high volume, you know, efforts. Now, th those two things are polar ends of the conditioning spectrum. So again, one of the first questions which we always get into is, is athlete X, Y, or Z on a weight making strategy or on a performance strategy? Because you ultimately want them to sit them in this performance strategy, because that's hopefully going to get you to the physical capabilities you need for the fight. But if you don't make weight, whether you're in an amateur um, environment and you potentially can't compete if you miss weight, or if you're in a professional environment and you're going to lose a lot of money if you don't make weight, one or the other, like sitting in this paradigm of weight management, driving your programming strategy is actually the antithesis of what you want a performance training program to look like. But because we're a weight classification sport, that's what happens with some athletes is that the pendulum swings to one direction to the other. So that then influences massively what type of training you ultimately have to do. So you can write the world's best training plan, but if this athlete is you know, chowing down on too much food or is struggling with a weight management strategy, unfortunately, you've got to ditch that and you've got to get over here because they can't fight if they don't make weight or you're going to lose you know, a lot of money. So that's always in the background with combat sports as well. Plenty of challenges. And that brings me on to back to you, Reese. We've cut, obviously talked about a couple of challenges. Don't just, just mention one there. What other challenges do you face on a daily basis working with combat sport athletes? Um, so first and foremost, like I think combat sports, obviously a lot of the time they, they have a lot of tradition in their sort of, uh, in their past, our sport, Taekwondo is a, a Korean martial art. And there's definitely that, that sort of East Asian martial art influence there around a lot of tra a high training load a lot of uh, a lot of repetition of skill going on um you know i know we've spent a lot of time over in korea training with the sports university over there and the national team over there and those guys are training three times a day um six days a week and one once on a sunday and the the default answer for any sort of question of of how do we get better is well we're going to do more um, and, and I think, you know, in, in Great Britain, we, we try and have a much more intelligent answer to that paradigm as far as how do we make people better? Um, but it, you know, it's always lurking in the background and you can't deny the success that a country like Korea has had on a, on a international level, you know, an Olympic level within our sport. So, you know, volume is, is a big driver of, of the program and, and how much time the guys spend in training. And obviously, once that becomes a, a big factor, that's going to influence what we put into the S&C program. You have to be super careful about how much heavy strength training you're doing, how hard you're going on certain exercises, especially like eccentrically loaded exercises through the posterior chain, because they're going to be going in and, and kicking at high velocity. So you want to make sure that they're ready to do that. Um, and then, and then the other thing is the contact sports, all of these are contact sports and, you know, a, a few of my athletes have just got a running joke that they've never, they've never completed a program as it was on the sheet of paper, which I, I find less funny, but, um, <laughs> ultimately it comes down to like, you know, they might kick an elbow. They might, you know, clash, clash awkwardly with someone, um, in the session five minutes before they come into you. And what was on paper, the, the, the perfect session for them five minutes ago now is a, a disaster and you're having to rewrite the whole thing. And, uh, so within that you, you, you absolutely, you need your plan and you need to know, um, you know, it comes back to what I was saying, understanding why you put that session 
on for that athlete? What was the purpose? Um, and then being able to adapt quickly to, to that, to, to find a way of achieving, um, you know, the same goal or as close to the same goal as possible um, without, without sort of further damaging the area or, or playing with that sort of risk reward spectrum of making sure that we're, we're getting as much reward as possible out of the training inputs we're putting into the guys with, with the lowest risk possible. Um, and that's, that's a conversation we're constantly having with the coaches and, and seeing how we can play with things on it. You know, how, how technical do we go with certain sessions? How non-technical do we go more general? Do we go with certain sessions? Um, so yeah, those, to me, those are the challenges I, I, I certainly face, you know, day in, day out. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks, mate. Danny, over to you, mate. I can resonate and echo exactly what we're nodding going on. I'm sure that Duncan can say it as well. Um, boxers have extremely high training loads. Um, they have relatively short training camps. So if we're looking at like kind of uh, max strength adaptations or anything like that, we've only got a certain window before it's going to have an impact on their sparring performance. And that's that's you know that's the the main thing that they need to keep improving when they're going into a fight so let's say you've got a 10 week 12 week camp they start sparring six and eight weeks out so you've only got about three or four weeks to have have your fun with them basically um and then obviously you've got uh weight making um boxers don't really come through an athletic development program so they have low exposure to strength and movement training so um each camp, you're trying to build it on it, but you've only got a certain amount of time. But I think the the main kind of challenge that I've got um, with with boxing science is creating a multidisciplinary team around the athlete. Like I think that uh, recent and Duncan, they'll have athletes that come in for a service from the the full team, so nutritionists, strength conditioning, physiology, nutrition, and with, with us, they either come in for, for one, they're coming for two, but then we haven't got a massive team. So we haven't got a physiotherapist, we haven't got a performance analyst. So each boxer that I work with has a different team. So they'll have a, like a masseur or a chiropractor. So these like little injuries that can flare up within a training camp, um, I won't receive a phone call about. I'll have to just have a chat with the athlete and the athlete might not be able to explain it in that way. So I think that's a, that's a key thing that for, for boxing science going forward, I want to create a better team uh, for an athlete. So like everything's under one roof and we can have the meetings at the start of the week about all the athletes that we work with. And at the end of the week, review the progress and, and, and the plan going forward. Um, I'd like to open that question up to Duncan. How, how does he, uh, kind of manage a multidisciplinary team and also like working with athletes remotely working with their teams because obviously mixed martial artists they have massive teams from uh, the jiu-jitsu coaches to the striking coaches to snc nutrition i'm, I'm sure that he'll have uh, a few things to say about it yeah thanks dan um no i mean absolutely um i was just going to talk about the challenges of mma first and you know the challenges are just the amount of different variables that can influence and affect a programming strategy. Um, you know, the, the, there's so many um, to, to count. It, it, it just gets ridiculous. And, you know, I, I've had the pleasure, I think, of working with 37 different pro or Olympic sports and by far and away the most challenging from a, a programming strategy has been MMA and getting involved here with the UFC um, because of all the different variables that come into it. Um, so yeah, the, you know, Dan's touched on, you know, interdisciplinary services and, you know, what we're, we're blessed here at the performance Institute. And that was the whole, the whole concept of building the UFC PI was to do exactly what Danny's talking about. We had fighters that, you know, have got multiple different styles that they have to train for, um, on top of, you know, adding, you know, recovery, regeneration or physical training or going to see their dietitian or actually spending time with their family or, you know, being an electrician or a pipe layer as well as being a pro fighter, you know, all this type of stuff. Um, so they're dashing across the city. They're going all over the place. You know, morning is spent with the boxing coach, the boxing coach, you know, kickboxing coach wants to, you know, get the most out of that session and redline the session. And then they cross the city and they go do some jujitsu sparring well, now the jiu-jitsu coach has got his moment in front of the athlete. So he's obviously pushing the whole thing. And then he goes and finishes off his day with a, 
you know, an S&C session and that guy wants to do some high intensity intervals and suddenly what was happening in MMA is just like there was no connectivity between an athlete's team, all right? And it was all disconnected in terms of true strategy and, you know, what we know about performance science now of how to optimize athletic potential. So, you know, that's what the Performance Institute's about. And luckily, you know, we, we've got it all under one roof with a, with, a, with a group of professionals here, but we've still got to tap into the fighters' teams. You know, we've got a roster of 600 from all over the world. They've got their own gyms, their own coaches, their own teams. But, you know, we try and understand our role in the bigger picture of an athlete's, you know, service portfolio. But, um, yeah, coming back to kind of the original question, challenges with combat athletes, whether it's just stylistic backgrounds, whether it's culture, whether it's traditional dogma that's embedded that you're trying to break. Um, again, let, let's be honest, all right? Combat sport is the first sport there ever was. Like this, this, this has been around for, you know, millions of years, right? When cavemen were fighting each other, that, that's what they did, right? So yes, it's been professionalized and legitimized and put rules against it, but th there's a lot of dogma in combat sports. Some of it is, is very well thought through and is, you know, practice-based evidence. Some of it is not necessarily on point and is a little bit more, um, you know, spurious as to its impact and its effect. So I think that's, we're all learning in the field of, of combat sports. And Reese talked about, you know, the need to, to get more data, insights and efficacy to, to performance strategies. People love him putting their hand up today. <laughs> Set us off, Duncan. Duncan set a trend. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll just quickly tap, tap into what uh, Duncan was saying about the, the dogma. It's like boxing in this country now, in the UK, um, is becoming more and more popular. So there's more strength and conditioning coaches wanting to, to go in it. But boxers, because it's, it's a professional sport, but they don't do any interviews to hire the strength and conditioning coaches so that they won't see whether they've got the right uh, credentials or qualifications. So I think that this dilutes actual service that strength and conditioning can offer for, for athletes. Um, so I think like definitely going forward, there needs to be some sort of um, chat with, with uh, the board or England boxing, because if you are a technical coach, you have to have, either have England boxing qualification uh, to work with amateur boxers or British Boxing Board of Control uh, license to, to, train, to train professional fighters. Well, there's no, nothing for strength and conditioning coaches at the moment. And you're finding people that are working with, with fighters um, doing suboptimal uh, training methods, but that kind of dilutes the services that strength and conditioning coaches that are doing good things um, to, to get across to boxing. And then, if it doesn't, the, the methods that these uh, other coaches are doing uh, might give strength and conditioning a, a bad reputation. So yeah, it's it's trying to make sure that we're you know we're doing the right thing, trying to put the right educational content out there, and trying to upskill uh, SNC coaches and boxing coaches to show what the gold standard is for uh, strength and conditioning. Suboptimal, well put. Yeah, I like that, <laughs> Reese. Uh, yeah, sorry, just like, and taking it back to some of the chat, you know, Duncan and Danny were talking about, um, like an MDT and, and the value of, of that, you know, multidisciplinary team, like, yeah, we're, we're extremely fortunate here, much like Dunk, um, as far as having on site, uh, every day, you know, a couple of physios is myself and James, the two S and C's, um, a psych and, and, you know, and a few other support services there as well, nutritionists. And we're, we're just sat in a room together all day. And that, that is obviously extremely valuable, but I feel like in um, fight sports and combat sports, there's an extra layer to that because if there's one sort of attitude that I, I've found consistent across all fighters is if, you, if they feel like you are making a session easier on them because you are worried they might be injured or there might be a, like a concern there, they're going to try and prove to you that they could do that session. Like, it, I'm yet to come across a fighter who, when you put them in a gym and you say, like, that session this morning looked really tough. Like, should we scale, should we scale this session back today? That they're going to go like, oh, yeah, that'd be great. Thanks. <laughs> like, not, normally they're like, no, like, I, I, I want to go harder. And that is, that's a huge strength to have as far as, like, an athlete base that you get to work with. But it can, be, it can be a real headache as well at times. You know, sometimes you have to save some of these guys from themselves because they will – 
they will train hurt because the the sport it kind of demands that of them you know it's a it's a sport where you are trying to hurt other people and so you don't want to show your hurt you want to keep pushing um and so that's definitely a challenge and 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 uh, you know an mdt allows you to put as many sort of people around that those decisions as possible to make them as informed as possible um and so that there's a consensus that the athlete can see that actually you know everyone agrees here we need we need to take a step back here or we need to go a slightly different route but um yeah you know it's a mega strength but it's a it's it's a challenge as well that, that we find so we're just going to get a very quick break in the chat with Duncan, Danny and Reese. So over in part two, we have a little chat around building strength and power in fighters in different weight classes. And then a really important one based on some of the social media stuff that's been coming out recently and constantly comes out, safe weight cutting and weight management. So a really interesting part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hytro. Have you ever tried blood flow restriction training. So for pro sport teams and athletes, Hytro is the only performance BFR brand to create pressure validated BFR wearables that are practical, safe, and scalable, allowing you to enhance recovery and maximize athletic potential like never before. Widely used by top flight rugby, football, cricket, and motorsports teams already in post-game changing rooms, away game travel, hotels, or at home. Hytro has proven that creating their simple and effective wearables allows BFR to be delivered to athletes and squads simultaneously and safely. To find out how Hytro BFR can give your athletes a competitive edge, visit hytro.com or email the team at teamsales at hytro.com. And now back to the episode with Danny, Duncan, and Reese. Just moving on to the next point, which was building strength and power in, in boxers. I'm going to come to you, Danny, on this one. Be good, might be good to kick off with a bit of your philosophy and then move on to the how you differentiate between weight categories, if at all. Yeah. Uh, in terms of like strength and power, there's a lot of things to consider. Uh, like Duncan said about weight making, you know, how tight they are at the weight, how much like kind of muscle hypertrophy that you can put on an athlete, if there's anything, um, if you have to totally try and stay away from any kind of muscle hypertrophy at all. Um, also that it's saying about different weight categories, the taller the athlete, the obviously the um, more limited movement that they, they tend to have, but the, our main kind of training philosophy um, from our testing is that lower body impulse and uh, trunk muscle mass are the biggest contributors towards punch. So we try and focus most of our training towards that. And through our like load velocity uh, profiling, uh, what we found was that um, most boxers are more accustomed to um, lower force, high velocity movements. So they're very fast and explosive. However, they struggle with the high force, low velocity movements, so the max strength. Um, and from, like basically from our profile, they kind of cut off their, their uh, like one met max around about 0.4 meters per second and compare this to like other sports where they'll be able to grind through the movement at 0.3 meters per second. So we our main focus is to improve maximum strength with more advanced athletes that kind of build up them, them building blocks of, of max strength. We look to work across the force velocity curve. So they build max strength and then they're going on strength, speed, speed, strength, and working towards more explosive actions towards the back end of training camp. But with the athletes that are coming into the program for the first time, we look to try and build up them strength foundations as we, we call it the road to max strength, where they're building up the movement qualities, the strength qualities to be able to express high forces uh, and then from this we try and do uh, partial range lifts so we'll go like super maximal training so uh, uh, beyond their one met max to try and unlock that maximum strength um, also with partial range lifts these are more concentric based exercises so that um, doesn't stimulate as much muscular hypertrophy also soreness when they're in a, a weight category sport um, but sorry when they're in um, nutritional deficit as well so yeah partial range lifts and then just 
uh, keeping strength part of the program as long as we can. So even when they're doing uh, strength speed phases, we use uh, complexes and, and contrast training methods. So even though they're working on more explosive actions, we're still keeping them above like 90% uh, one minute max. So yeah, so basically it's, it's getting them, them strong and powerful and, and being able to transfer towards the sport. Testing and profiling, Danny, would you mind taking us through that, what you just mentioned there in a bit more depth? And I'll get the same um, question to, to Reese as we, as we go on as well. Yeah, so we perform various jump assessments. So we'll do a counter-movement jump and squat jump. Uh, and we highlight the difference between the counter-movement jump and squat jump. And um, in boxers, it's a very low difference. So we see people that have like 0.5 centimetres difference between the, uh, the squat jump and counter-movement jump, whereas like in other sports, looking at two centimetres and even four centimetres. Um, with, uh, with a lot of boxers actually come in, the squat jump is higher than the counter-movement jump. So this is showing that poor eccentric utilization. So we look to try and improve that, but we, we do it that through plyometrics, uh, landing mechanics, um, but we can't necessarily do it through what we normally do is like kind of eccentrics or, or, or squats, because that, that obviously exposes them to like kind of high muscle soreness. So yeah, just trying to, trying to, be, trying to be clever around that. Uh, we do reactive strength index. We do that through uh, a 10, five uh, pogo assessment so literally just uh, bouncing on the spot uh, doing the pogos we don't do it from a 30 centimeter uh, box height just because of that eccentric utilization because we we know that they can't really um, control them downward forces so we look to do the um, the pogo test and then we do the load velocity profiling uh, we do this um, with trap bar deadlift predominantly because we we find that the better at that technique um, with a squatting, they're not not that good, especially when they first start the program. So we do it with a trap bar uh, deadlift. Uh, we start them around about uh, their body weight, and we'll, and we build that up. Um, the increments depend on the meters per second that they're producing. So the probably when you get to about 0.5 meters per second, the increments get a lot smaller, and then we probably cut them off. Uh, when the technique starts wavering. Um, we've just had some boxers just come through the first time um, and they've been doing trap bar deadlifting for a while and I'm cutting them off at about 0.45 meters per second. So even when we've got athletes that can go to 0.4, 0.38, and, and this is very different to um, like sports such as like rugby, um, we've got getting athletes that are accustomed to doing trap bar deadlifts, but they can't maintain that postural stability to, to overload. That's why we start using partial range lifts uh, to make sure that we, we're unlocking that maximum strength. Uh, and then for, for a punch assessment, uh, we've, we first started off with a med ball punch throw, um, but we found that that is dependent on space and also it's not as accurate. And we were only assessing hand speed, so we're using the three kilo medicine ball. So we uh, developed tests, uh, landmine punch throw tests, uh, using a 20 kilo bar, and basically throwing that as, as, as hard as I can. I kind of threw myself in the deep end with that. I did it with uh, Kel Brook, who still holds the record now uh, for the fastest punch. Uh, but yeah, um, basically throw the bar in a boxing stance, uh, doing five on the right, and then they switch the stance, five on the left, and then we also uh, do that at 10 kilos as well. We used to do like a mini load velocity profile with them. But we found that the, we get enough data from just taking them two data points. So we can see whether an athlete needs to work on their, their hand speed or they need to work on their, their strength, basically. So the difference between 20 kilos and 30 kilos depends on like kind of what kind of athlete that they are and how they produce force during that pun-specific action. Perfect. Thanks, mate. Reese. Similar question to you on the profiling assessment side. Yeah, so we're super basic. You know, Dunk used to be based at our place. He knows that a lot of our guys don't get overly excited at, when you start talking numbers to them. So <clears throat> we try not to be too exhaustive in our uh, in our sort of profiling with them. Um, 
we do counter movement jump and uh, drop jump with the guys. Um, you know, once upon a time, drop jump used to be a real performance indicator for us. Um, <clears throat> the sport played with the rules, and now now that's less of a sort of indicator for our guys. But counter movement jump, drop jump, still inform us nicely about sort of their their ability to produce force quickly. Um, we then do a, an isometric mid thigh pull, um, which you know again. W- w- the guys, it's not something that they necessarily see a direct direct correlation to what they're then doing on the on the on the mats. But what it does give us, and, and again, my colleague James Langford's done some really good work on this, is we do see the guys who score highest on that relative to body weight tend to spend more time in training fit rather than more time on the physio room uh, table, which is obviously a big big positive for for our guys and what we're trying to achieve with them. Um, and then we also have a peak plantar flexion test. Um, just our guys spend all day on their feet, bouncing around on their toes. And so understanding sort of <clears throat> the max force producing capability in that position has value. Um, I'd, I'd love to turn that isometric mid thigh pull into um, like a belt squat version of it. I've seen some of the guys, I think Carl Valley over in the US, playing with that. Um, our guys, we, you know, we, we, we strength train the guys, but it's not anything you like compared to what you'd see maybe over at British cycling, some of the numbers those guys are putting up. Our guys are strong relative to what they need for their sport, but um, they're not necessarily doing really heavy le- deadlifts. They're not necessarily doing super heavy, actually loaded, loaded squats. So I'm never super comfortable with, with either of those. That's where I'd like to move it eventually. But um, yeah, we, we, we're, all of this data, it's never about the numbers. It's about the story you can tell off the back of those numbers. And, and whereas, you know, I think once upon a time we used to go to tell the guys, Oh, you know, your, your strength index is up to 4.01 or, you know, wherever it was and think that they were going to be as excited about it as we were <laughs> like it, it didn't really play out that way. But if you can start talking to the guys about, you know, them understanding certain positions they're hitting in the ring, um, and how that relates. If you can start helping them understand how this is contributing to them spending more time on the mat doing the sport that they really enjoy, I think that's where the value is for us. So we're, we're, we've come a long way in, in our ability to tell stories off the diagnostics we do and the athletes and coaches buy into that as a process. But it's still, you know, it's still a work in progress, I'd say. Um, and yeah, ultimately, you know, for us, the, the biggest test is always how the guys feel when they're out out on the on the mat and 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 in fights. And if they if they feel like they're stronger and they feel like they're able to to move faster and 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 hit positions that they previously found harder to hit, and they now they can hit them better and cleaner. And you know they're hitting the pad harder and registering because the pads that our guys work off. Uh, you know the scoring pads register how hard they've been hit, and you've got to go above a certain threshold in order to to score the point, you know, if they, if they see that they are consistently registering on that pad, um, you know, more often than they used to, then, then they're going to feed that back. And and so there's a lot of trust there of rather than us having to try and justify our role all the time based off, you know, an increase in, in isometric strength, you know, that the, the athletes and the coaches are really good about understanding the, the role physicality plays in their performance and, and, and how we might be able to help them with that. So Oh, just a reminder, if anyone's got any questions, pop it in the Q&A, pop it in the chat. Dunk's been busy answering as we go. But Dunk, for someone that's not in your space, spider sessions and fight gone bad sessions, talk to me about those. Yeah, I mean, so kind of a specific way. I mean, there's specific phrases for um, situational training, I would say you know like let's say fight gone bad i mean ultimately it, it does what it says on the tin you're going to take an athlete and you you know you, you you you're purposely putting them in unorthodox positions with a new partner maybe they're on the back against the fence you're going to throw a new partner in they, they might work with that partner for a, a minute trying to work to get back to their feet against the the octagon fence um, after a minute, then a new partner will come in, and they'll they'll go back down to the to the on the back again, and they've got to continue to do these you know, these things which are you know unorthodox positions, not comfortable, challenging both physically and mentally. Um, and I think it was Andy or someone asked the question, you know, is that a good approach? Like I, I love that approach, 
I think it's it's it, you know it's it's very hard in the weight room to find a way to simulate the physicality of a fight as well as the mentality of a fight. So often those things have to be um, replicated or challenged or overloaded in sparring or, or kind of controlled sparring environments. That often means it gets taken out of the hands of the S&C coach and the, the technical coaches usually take that on. Um, so I love it conceptually. All I would say is if you are a strength coach, try and be around those sessions because, again, you're supposed to be the expert in managing energetics, intervals, fatigue, overload, um, and you ultimately want to try and influence and support the technical coaches if that's the type of sparring session or live rounds that they're doing um, so that you can at least impart your wisdom um, on someone that might not necessarily be coming from a sports science background or a physical prep background but knows why they're trying to do something in this fight gone bad or spider type sessions or um, shark tanks, we call them, you know, different things like that, which are the connection between mental strain and overload and physical strain and overload. Um, but I certainly want my guys around those, even though they might not necessarily be delivering it themselves. Just going to Danny and Reese, do you do a similar thing in terms of the, the principles behind that, putting your guys and girls in compromise positions with potential like worst case it sounds like worst case scenario type stuff we definitely within our environment we have sort of certain themes of, of certain phrases that we we term our um well you know certainly i term our, our brand of, of how we like to fight and you know a big big part of that is is the pace at which we want to fight and and being the first one to to make contact and you bring that language into certain training sessions, you know, and we'll gear, especially as we start getting closer to, you know, a major or something like that. We, we will put some guys in some really challenging training sessions. You know, we're driving, driving lactate super high, you know, putting them in a really uncomfortable position, you know, active recovery where, where you're not, you know, we're demanding of them. They recover on feet and that they, they keep working and they stay positive And we keep, we, we're in their ear with some of that language, you know, it's, it's not just a hard session that someone's undergoing on their own in the middle of the, in the middle of a ring. It's, it becomes a real, like a whole gym thing surrounding this guy. And especially in the run into the games, like we had some, some, some really uh, intense uh, days where, where some of those sessions got put around those guys. I think you've got to be, you've got to be clever with how often you go there with some of that stuff, you know, like the, that whole mental toughness thing that used to get banded around a lot, like, you know, these guys, if they're not mentally tough, they're not in that ring anyway. And, and you're not going to, you're not going to create that off the back of, you know, just a really hard conditioning session that you thought up on, you know, on an Excel spreadsheet. Um, you know, if these guys are, are ready to fight and try and kick people in the head, then that, then, you know, no amount of training is going to change that. But I think there's definitely a, a factor in players understanding what it's like to feel the level of fatigue they might have to feel on fight day and that, you know, that they can keep working through that, that understanding that like, this isn't, I don't get to this level of fatigue and that's me done. Like I'm, I'm out of this fight that actually they can come through that and they can, you know, especially with certain strategies, not just mental, but certain physical strategies in the way in which they go about trying to optimize the recovery between hard efforts and it can become a, you know, a real positive thing for them. And, you know, I think we certainly saw that with a few of our guys come games time where they had to, had to dig deep in a few of their fights, especially some of their, you know, quarterfinal semifinals. Um, and, you know, because of some of the work they put in and because of the sort of people they are and, and the mentality they've got, you know, they, they didn't quit in that moment. They knew that the, the fight was there to win. So, yeah, you've got to be you've got to be clever how you dose that in. You, you can't be can't be a hero with this stuff, but there's definite value, and we definitely play around with that where we can. Danny, from your boxer's point of view, on that same thing, on that same theme, as Duncan and Reese just touched on there, probably more on the mental side, really, just pushing your guys the the limit. Is it something you do, or yeah, it well, might be an Alan question that one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the, the thirty second max out sprints they take people into the put them on the physical and psychological edge um can't do that 
too close to a fight because, like I said, got uh, sparring. I'd say that the boxing coach puts in fresh sparring partners, so they might have two sparring partners or or maybe three over a twelve round distance. Uh, for me, towards the back end of a of a training camp, I start putting altitude training in, and the main reason is to start reducing them them uh, volume loads, and whilst they're wanting to be like kind of fresh for sparring, but still keep maintaining that fitness going into uh, going into the fight. But it's also psychologically tough in there. It, and I remind them of that when, when they're in there. This is this is a style of training that nobody else is is doing in the world. Their opponent's not going to be doing that, pushing them to the edge where they're feeling like the lungs are about to burst, uh, feeling like I, I just want to get out of this um, out of this um, out of this altitude tent. But also, I'm pushing them to to hit their numbers every time. So not only are they finding it tough. They're not able to kind of take their foot off the gas and they're not able to quit in there. So when they get out, you, you see that the confidence in their fitness going into the fight is sky high without actually uh, pushing them to them real high levels of fatigue where it's going to affect their sparring or, or obviously when they're looking to make weight as well. So yeah, uh, put them in the altitude temp, not only from a physical perspective, maintain that fitness, dropping the, uh, the total volume load, but also uh, psychologically tough as well. Cool, thanks, mate. This next one might be a short one, but I know we've touched on it in and out for the, over the last 53 minutes. Dunk, safe weight cutting and weight management. Any principles? I think principles might be the way to go down, given that we're a little bit pushed for time. Yeah, I mean, listen, this is a key conversation for combat sports, and that I don't want to dominate the conversation here, but I would say MMA is, you know, MMA fighters are cutting way more weight than Taekwondo fighters or boxers are. Um, and consequently, you know, we, we've got some pretty robust and rigorous kind of strategies that we try and put in place. Um, long story short, there's a difference between chronic weight, make, cr chronic weight descent and acute weight descent. Chronic weight descent relates to changes in body composition. So fat mass or lean tissue. Acute weight making relates to um, the removal of, of you know, non-essential compartments of the body. So usually muscle glycogen, um, gut content, and then total body water. So we can, you know, a, a fighter when they are making a weight cut, which is the last part of a, of a weight descent, um, it, it, they're, they're not essentially changing their body composition. They're tricking the, the, the scales, let's say. The key to it, obviously, is the more lead time you can get, the more runway you have on a weight descent, the more effective you're going to be um, and the more optimized you're going to be going into competition. So we talk about, you know, a weight loss risk score where we look at um, the percent of weight loss divided by um, the number of weeks times by the percent overweight times by a thousand. That gives you a score. Um, if you take that score, if it is um, less than one, that means you need to cut about 0.7 to 1% of your body weight per week, um, which means you know that, that's pretty easy to do. If you move up to the next layer and it's kind of what, you know, points, excuse me, if it's less than 0.7, no risk, 0.7 to one, you know, moderate risk, uh, excuse me, um, you know, a higher level of risk, one to 2%. You know, certainly high risk and over 3% of, of weight loss per week, very high risk that you're not going to be successful. We, we have um, a system where our guys check in on a Tuesday before a Saturday fight. It's very different to Olympic competition, um, an amateur competition, and even collegiate wrestling where you usually weigh in the day of, or certainly the day before, our guys weigh in the day before. And guys check in on a Tuesday. So on Tuesday before a weighing on Friday, we want our guys to be about seven or eight percent overweight. All right. We know we can get about um, two to four percent of body weight from muscle glycogen. We know we can get about one to two percent of body weight from gut content. And we know we can get anywhere from two to five percent of body weight from total water dehydration. Right. If you add those all up, that takes you to about 11 percent of non-essential compartments in your body that you can remove um, remove weight from in a 24 hour period. 
So we use those mechanisms to then say, well, 8% or 7 or 8% is a really healthy way to come in, drop the last little bit of weight through some either passive um, sweat loss, things like sitting in a sauna, active wet, or wearing a sauna suit, um, active weight loss. You might sit on a bike and sweat out. You might hit the bags and, and sweat it out. You know, removal of sodium, removal of fiber from your diet, removal of carbohydrate from your diet, those types of things for a cute period of time. Um, there's a, definitely a science and an art to it now. We've got a lot more literature and research is coming out there. Read Dr. Reed Real, who is on our team here at the UFC Performance Institute, has done a lot of work in this space, um, you know, giving guidance on, on methodology around um, weight loss and weight making for combat sports. Um, it can be a, a methodology and a mechanism that is very badly mismanaged. Um, so still not sticky amongst the community of, of how people are going about making weight. But the caveat to it all to finish, the longer duration, the longer time you give yourself to make weight, the more optimal you're going to be. And also when you have a fight, making sure you don't balloon up and just start going off with the grid with respect to your diet and your exercise modalities, meaning that you have to then do these bigger cuts every single time is obviously central to the conversation. Um, but yeah, there's certainly a science to, um, to effectively making weight and being optimal going into the, into competition. Amazing. Thanks mate. Danny, over to you. We've got a couple minutes left and I'll, we'll finish don't, know off what else, don't know what else I can say to that. I think Duncan's uh, summed that up pretty well. Um, well, I said everything that I'd, I'd want to say on the subject. So I think the the great thing that I'm going to say about what Duncan said there is, is calling it a weight descent instead of a weight cut. And that's what boxers and MMA athletes need to consider looking at not what they're doing six days out or 24 hours out. They need to be looking at what they're doing six weeks and 12 weeks out. And that's what we do at Boxing Science. We, we encourage monitoring their uh, daily body mass because a lot of boxers is, tend to um, bury their head under the sand. Uh, the uh, couple of boxers that have been the worst at weight making didn't want to look at their weight because it, it created anxiety. So having to get the boxers to weigh in every day to look at the, the fluctuations and to make sure that they're hitting a certain percentage of their body mass to lose week by week and also monitoring body composition as well. So we can see whether an athlete is, is losing uh, their body mass the required rate and whether we need to put anything in there. So working with a recent athlete who was about six, seven weeks out, we compared their data compared to the, the previous camp. And so, well, we've got an issue here rather than look like hoping for it to come, the weight to come off and trying to deal with it on fight week. And that's something that's happened in the past. Now we've got all the data on, on each athlete to make sure that we comparative data to make sure that they're making uh, making weight uh, safely and, and with precision as well. Perfect. Just before I come to you, Reese. Oh, Duncan's got it. Yeah, type in, Reese. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Multi multitasking. That's why he's at the next level, Don. Over there. <laughs> Sorry, I'm mate. One thing, I'm one thing at a time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I just like within our sport, and I know some of the other Olympic sports. Just, just to sort of uh, mention, mention within that, like there's there's been a lot of lobbying of of, Nash, of uh, governing bodies across, you know, World Taekwondo, and I believe it's similar situation in in Judo as well as of um, day of weighing. So we, you know, as Dunk said, we we weigh the day before a fight. Um, so it used to be the night before a fight they've moved that earlier in the day in line with what i think ufc do as well which is obviously really positive you're giving people an extra 12 hours maybe to to rehydrate and get where they need to be um but i think the biggest thing for us because we we definitely see internationally some people still doing some crazy things but they've introduced this um day of weigh-in for they they randomly pick a third of the sort of uh, the competition roster and they, they get pulled back in before the first fight of the day. And they have to weigh, weigh in within 5% of the, the weight category that they fight in. So for a guy that's fighting at minus 80 kilos, um, you know, he's maybe having to, to sit around and mass on the spot, not good, like 84-ish kilos, um, you know, on day of fight, which, you know, having previously seen some people two weeks out 
from fight, not our guys, but internationally again, two weeks out from fight day to fight at minus 80 and they're walking around at 92 kilos. And you just, you know, it's, it's one of those moments. So you think like, I hope you're okay. They now know that there is that risk that if they get pulled out on, on the morning of the fight, they're going to have to weigh in still pretty close. And yes, some people will still, still take that risk, but it's definitely seems to have, have, have helped our sport. And, and because we've always tried to do things right within Great Britain, but then you always look, you know, you look internationally and you see some of the some of the athletes turning up from other countries and you feel like maybe we're at a slight disadvantage here because they are clearly coming in on fight day, you know, maybe seven, eight kilos heavier at that weight category. And that's that's a significant advantage. Well, now now that's leveled the playing field a little bit more. And, you know, the the risk of being massively dehydrated on fight day and taking shots to the head, the the is huge. The risk to our guys of fighting dry. And, you know, to muscle tears and, and, and those sorts of things is really significant as well. And so, you know, there's been a lot of education had to go into that. And that's our, our team's done an amazing job on that. But without that, that final piece of the sport really buying in and understanding that, that how important it is to get that bit right for the, for the sort of uh, duty of care of athletes, I think it would be, a, it'd be such like a much bigger challenge. And so, yeah, it's been really positive to see World Taekwondo step up and, and put that in. And I know, like I said, I'm, I'm sure judo have got a similar system and, and a few other sports I've heard of putting similar things in place as well. Thanks for tuning in to episode 464 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Danny, Duncan and Reese for giving up an hour of their time to have a little chat around strength and conditioning in combat athletes. This was recorded back in late 2021 when Reese was at GB Taekwondo and is now at GB Cycling, but still some amazing information in there, even if it is 18 months old. So big thanks to those guys for giving up their time and also big thank you to Team Builder, Hawking Dynamics, Play and Hytro for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in and look forward to chatting to you next time. Thank you.